And there ends the reading, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The focus, of course, will be on the fourth verse, but let me begin by saying my plan this afternoon after our lunch time together, I'll do a Bible study at the, on the very beginning of the book of Zephaniah, one of the most obscure and little known of the smaller minor prophet books. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible, but oh my, does it pack a punch, so to speak. And the parallels between what was going on in the ancient kingdom of Judah with our current circumstances are remarkable, to say the least. They do violence to the law. The book's uh, main theme has to do with that very issue. The events in the book of Zephaniah take place during the reign of so-called, and rightfully so, good king Josiah of Judah. There was a time... This was a time of immense political and religious and cultural turmoil and decline. And the book was probably written around the 600s B.C. One of the main themes of the book is the denunciation of the widespread idolatry and moral decadence within the kingdom of Judah. Zephaniah condemns the people for practicing various forms of idol worship mixing together different religious beliefs and forsaking their covenant with Jehovah God, what we would today call uh, syncretism or New Age beliefs. Never forget that these people, God's old covenant people, they're existing in a pagan world surrounded by populations of people who practice all kinds of bizarre, strange, moral, sexual, religious practices. And one of the reasons we find the prohibitions that we do in God's law, telling them, don't do this, don't do that, don't get involved in any of these things, is because the people around them were constantly doing it. There was a temptation for them. The prophet Zechariah gives us a desolating picture of corruption and injustice, not among the pagans, it was there for sure, but this is among God's people in God's place. The most fearful part of the picture, the the prophet tells us, is the apathy of the great mass of people, especially among those among the people of Judah that would have been considered, you know, the better people of the city of Jerusalem, the more devout, the upper crust. The prophet tells us their attitude was something like, you know, God doesn't hear us. He doesn't see us. He's far too remote. So we must be practical in the face of situations that confront us. We must be realistic men. I submit to you right away, we've got a parallel today with the modern, and I don't mean the past five years, I mean going back at least half a century, evangelical churches, where so much that's been done in terms of worship, in terms of church practice, has been based on that very corrupt principle. God is too far remote. Our traditional beliefs are not relevant. We've got to be more practical for the situations that we face right now. And so, exactly as men and women today, these people went about their daily affairs feeling and believing that the requirements of God are not all that important, especially in our modern circumstance, so they can be set aside and ignored. Their operating procedure was, and it is today, The standards of living based on humanism and, frankly, paganism are far more important than practical. And it is the requirements of what our culture, what their culture dictated, that must be met. 
Now, we're living in a time where we see this and where there is, of course, immense social and cultural pressure for people who are not on board, say, with the modern perverted sexual practices and emphases to conform, to accept, you know, the drag queen story hour and uh, sex changing and gender dysphoria and all the rest of it. We are rapidly approaching, and in some places we're already there, where the pressure will be far more than just cultural. You will be required. You will be coerced. Either conform or we will put you in a camp or we'll do away with you. I said, well, how could people be so cruel? Well, you see, friends, when you've got competing worldviews or competing gods, we would say, they, they can't coexist in the same place. It's like the term sovereign. There are, there's no more than one sovereign anywhere. The word sovereign naturally excludes anyone and everything who's not sovereign. There can only be one. There can only be one order of law in a society. And it's either based on God's divine law or humanistic law. Now, in this short book, up to this chapter 3, the prophet had begun speaking Jehovah's words of condemnation to the pagan nations. And now in chapter 3, Zephaniah turns from the nations he had indicted in those previous chapters, and he focuses on the sins of God's people. And he specifically accuses Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the seat, the focus. It's hard for us to think of this today. We wouldn't think of New York City, or especially San Francisco, as sort of the seat of everything good and cultural and relevant. Even when things were better off in these United States, say 50, 100 years ago, we wouldn't have thought of those places like that. But Jerusalem was different. Jerusalem is where God's divine law word has impacted the world, and he's accusing, by accusing Jerusalem, he's accusing their politics, their government, and their religious practices, which are supposed to be in conformity to God's law. Jerusalem is charged with impurity and injustice, with disobedience and arrogance toward the prophets who speak God's word. The so-called holy city had become guilty of indifference to God's law. Therefore, they become guilty of treachery and immoral conduct towards the Lord. The entire city is charged with having forgotten that God, who will not tolerate evil, is in their midst. Her prophets and priests, Jerusalem, Judah's prophets and priests, are charged with violating the commandments of God and polluting the sanctuary and doing violence to the law. So I think that when we consider what the prophet is saying about those people, when we consider our own times, and the thing that unites them and us is the sinfulness of humanity, the sinful nature of human beings, I think it will be instructive for us to consider, and I'm going to say there may be more, I'm going to consider five ways in which violence can and is being done to God's law. First of all, Violence is done by denying the abiding validity of God's law, the, the, the eternal application of God's law. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, puts it this way, and I'm going to read this from two different versions of the confession. The uh, classic version, the moral law doth forever bind all as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. 
Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. In other words, the moral law, that is the Ten, the ten Commandments, the law of God has summarized the Ten Commandments. However, does not, excuse me, let me start that over, I'm sorry. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, does pertain to everyone, saved and unsaved, forever, not just with respect to its content, but also in relationship to the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. In the Gospel, Christ does not in any way remove this obligation, but rather strengthens it. When we consider in the New Testament, the book of James, for example, we're told directly and clearly in James 2.8, The thing to do is to keep the supreme law of Scripture. You will love your neighbor as yourself. So if you, James is saying, if you fulfill sovereign law, as Scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing commendably. In Romans 13, Paul says this. And again, this is the, the point of this, these passages is to support and prove that the Westminster Confession statement about the abiding validity of the law of God to any and everyone is valid. It is correct. Paul says in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and he lists several, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, And any other commandment, he says, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's very clear from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, the law word of God applies always and everywhere to everyone. So, where does the violence come in? Well, you see it, for example, in those churches today where their pastors and their leaders promote and platform practices and lifestyles that God's law absolutely forbids and condemns. We might say those are the more woke or left-leaning churches. But on the other hand, and in many ways far worse, have been so-called conservative churches who have denied the abiding validity of God's law. They have largely convinced hundreds of thousands of Christians that the law of God no longer applies today. No, 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 we are governed by the red-letter law of love in our New Testament and Book of Psalms together. Friends, both of those approaches, the so-called left and the right approach, constitute profaning and violating the divine law of God. Secondly, violence is done by failure to declare all of the law. Paul was determined, he said, to declare the whole purpose or counsel of God to people who would listen. And that meant the contents of God's divine plan. As recorded in Acts 20, verse 27, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Remember that passage we read a moment ago from the book of James, James 2, 8? You are doing right if you obey this law from the highest authority, you love your neighbor as yourself. It's the right thing to do to keep God's law. Now, it's worthwhile to contrast God's law with man's law, with humanistic law. It has been correctly observed that there are so many state and federal laws and regulations that most of us don't even know any of them, or a majority of them. And so that results, as someone has speculated, and I think there's some validity to it, that all of us could be convicted of committing some crime or offense every day, three days a week, three times a day. 
There's so many of these rules and regulations from state and federal government. But that's the nature of humanistic law. It becomes wider and more expansive and more coercive to where it's the total governing of every aspect of your behavior. God's law is different. It is a unity. And its purpose is justice. If we violate the law at any point, we have chosen thereby injustice according to God. We have broken the law. Maybe think of it this way. If a person is dedicated to physical fitness and exercise daily, but then they go out and they drink poison, well, you see that poison negates their exercise plan. And so James says, we must keep the whole law to avoid being a transgressor of the entire law. He says that in James uh, 3, 9 to 11. And he refers to God's law as the law of liberty in verse 12 of James 3. But you see, sin is slavery. Most people have this completely backwards in their minds. They've been made to think by the humanists and the pagans that the legal system that God has given us in his divine word is so restrictive, it's like being a slave. But it's just the opposite. God's law is the law of liberty. But humanistic law is the law of sin and slavery. To break God's law at any point is to move from freedom into slavery, he tells us. And friends, we are required by God Almighty to be governed above all else by his law word. Thirdly, violence is done when there is adding to or subtracting from the law. We know from Revelation 22, 18 to 19, that a curse is pronounced on all those who add to or subtract to the words of Holy Scripture. And that means the law of God. And we have an example among many in Leviticus chapter 10 of how that looked, what happened. Leviticus 10, 1 to 2, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord who had not commanded them. And fire came out from Jehovah and consumed them, and they died before Jehovah God. I'm sure these guys thought they were being very practical. You know, we've been doing it this way for all this time. Maybe if we do the, do the, do the censers this way and offer the fire that way, it would be a little easier and more practical. A small matter to them, but a big deal to God Almighty. Because, you see, it made their worship vain and self-centered. Maybe, just maybe churches have rushed too quickly into adding to the work of the church in the form of, say, social or recreational programs. There are all types of these sorts of things. I recall many years ago now when I had the opportunity to visit a big megachurch. It was constantly in the news being promoted and platformed by the news media back in the day. And I had an opportunity to visit them on a midnight, uh, excuse me, a midweek service in the evening. I'd heard so much about this thing. I'd met the pastor once or twice. I walked in, and it was in a big shopping center where there had been a store like a Kmart or something. And I walked in, you know, and here's the entrance. And over here to the right side, I saw uh, a coffee shop. And then over to the left side was this big bouncy house. You know, those kind of rubberized blue and orange things that they set up for kids to play in. It was massive. They thought that was a good idea to improve upon the experience of the church. What about adding to the organizational structure of the church in the form of, say, parachurch ministries? I'm not saying any and all of these things 
are wrong absolutely all the time. I'm just saying maybe we've been too quick in light of God's requirements of us to launch into some of these things. There's an amazing story in Jeremiah 36 that many of us overlook or have never heard. In Jeremiah 36, beginning at verse 21, Then the king, this is the king Jehoiakim, he sent Jehuda to get the scroll, the scroll of God's law word is given through Jeremiah, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Yehuda read it to the king and all of the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And as Yehuda read three or four columns of the law of God, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. You see, after Jehoiakim found the law and heard it, he cut away what he didn't want. Jeremiah 36, 23. Violence was being done to the word of God by a man who was responsible for its safekeeping. Now, he was doing it very literally by clipping it physically away from the scroll. But today, if we don't have people putting out Bible translations that do a similar thing or you know, undercutting the teachings of divine scripture, then we have people who, who do it in practice, if not, you know, in, in the literal sense that that king did it. Fourthly, fourthly today, violence is done where there is altering or perverting the law. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, Paul warns about those who would distort or corrupt the pure kingdom message of Christ. And he says this to the church at Galatia, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to, and notice this phrase, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, accursed. Now, that phrase distort the gospel that literally means to be transforming it into something of an opposite character of what it is and in Paul's time it was the Judaizers those Jews who were combining the rituals of their Talmudic law with the kingdom message or at least attempting to with the kingdom message of Christ and trying to convince others that this is what they must do And so that raises the question, how many changes can we make to the pattern of sound words of Scripture before it has been distorted into something other than the law word of God? And then finally, number five, violence is done when the law is ignored. In Hebrews 5.9, the writer says, after he, that is Christ, had finished his work, he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone... Now, I'm going to stop it right there. <clears throat> Unless you just happen to have Hebrews 5.9 memorized, you don't know how it ends with the last phrase. Now, I'm doing this on purpose because I, I want you to think to yourself, imagine or think about this. Let me read it again, and you fill in the blank mentally. Hebrews 5.9, after he had finished his work, Christ became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who... See, the modern evangelical church, <clears throat> and sadly some Reformed churches, they're going to fill in that blank with the source of eternal salvation for everyone who asked him into their heart. 
He becomes the source of eternal salvation for all of those who have trusted Jesus, who've gone forward at the altar call. That's not what it says, my friends. God's word says he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. Maybe I'm being simplistic. But isn't it worth considering that we don't find one verse in all of Scripture that assures an eternal reward for those who ignore and disobey God's law? In fact, Paul promises vengeance, wrath on those who don't obey. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath, the vengeance of God, comes upon the sons of disobedience, those who disobey him. And so I invite you sometime to find even one verse, one paragraph or passage of Scripture that promises God's blessings for those who reject his law. For those who refuse to abstain from sins such as abortion, adultery, drunkenness, homosexuality. Romans 12, 21, we studied this a few weeks ago. Paul declared, do not be conquered by evil, but you overwhelm evil with good. Now, in all these things, he says in Ephesians 5, 27, we are commanded to be holy and without blemish. We are exhorted to not be the companions of people who deny God's law. And those people are fools. In Proverbs 13, 20, we're told, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And so, we know, coming back to Zephaniah and his time, we know from what happened after the events recorded here, that God's judgment came upon Jerusalem. And that judgment was a total judgment. We talked last week about total lordship. There's also total judgment. A judgment that left the land empty and deserted. And let me just tell you, friends, this is another area where we have serious problems in in terms of how we think about the Lord. We've been corrupted in thinking that, um, well, you know, I asked the Lord to, this, this is an example of the corrupted thinking I'm, I'm trying to describe to you. Uh, uh, you know, I asked the Lord to allow this to happen for me and, and praise the Lord it happened so he blessed me. He answered my prayer. So that's an example we would think, in, in other words, of God's blessing being made manifest in real time. I, I prayed that I would get this thing. I prayed that I would get that job and I got it. God blessed me in real time. But you see, when it comes to the judgments, to the sanctions, Most people don't think that way about God Almighty, especially the way it applies to nations and cultures. We're all happy to believe in the, the historical reality of God's blessings in history and time and space. But what about his sanctions, his judgments? Judgment came upon Jerusalem. Maybe they didn't believe it either, but they found out the hard way. It was a judgment that left the entire land of Judah, modern day Palestine, empty and deserted after that judgment took place in the form of the captivity of the people of Judah being carried off into slavery and the city and the temple being destroyed for 200 years there was not a single city or village in the entire land that had continuous habitation all of them had been laid desolate a land that had been entered many many years before by over two million people leaving Egypt and the bondage of slavery in the exodus and becoming very populated, now was a desolation in a wilderness. Wild animals howled over the ruins of the cities. Travelers were few and far between. And the settlers there were foreigners. And even they were a bare handful. 
Dr. Rastini wrote these words. He said, there is judgment upon the world today because our generation has dedicated itself around the world not to the truth of God and not to the justice of God and not to the grace of God, but to a blind, ugly, now get this, lust for security. He said, peace is placed above so many other things as though it were desirable in itself, as though any kind of peace were a good thing. To these things, he says, God wrote or God declares, all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. That's Hebrews 12, 27 that he quotes there. Sobering words from Dr. Rushdoony. Don't we live in an age where there is a lust for security? Friends, let's ask ourselves, what does it matter? What does it matter if God Almighty has spoken to us in these last days through his Son? And what difference does it make at all if the Lord has given us his divine law word in Scripture if we fail to listen, if we fail to read and hear and learn and obey? How many times have we ignored God's call to follow his word? How often have we shown ourselves to be unfaithful and hypocritical? My friends, regardless of our failings, the Lord will uphold his law because it's more important to him than even heaven and earth. They will be removed before he would allow the smallest letter or stroke to pass from the law. In Hebrews 55, excuse me, in Isaiah 55, 11, we read, the Lord declares, so shall my word be that it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I have sent it. Friends, do not do violence to God's law through your attitude or mine, through our actions. Allow our hearts to be pierced through with the power of his word and his spirit to obey him and his law today. Let us pray.